You don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Kira Revan, and this, this is the Sunday Seven. On today's episode of the Sunday Seven, microplastics in your roast dinner, new evidence points to life on Mars, and what it feels like to cross to the other side. But first, it was on this day in 1961 the female contraceptive pill first became available on the National Health Service in the UK. It's a medical revolution. Doctors have held a new era of medicine after a study showed for the first time that a drug can slow the debilitating symptoms of Alzheimer's. The most common form of dementia, Alzheimer's, is a progressive disease which involves parts of the brain that control thought, memory and language. The game-changing new drug called Lecanemab works by clearing clumps of protein called amyloid from patients' brains, which is thought to be a key cause of Alzheimer's. This is so exciting because now we're getting results, the first results that are indicating that the drug is successfully treating the underlying cause and is slowing down the symptoms of cognitive impairment and also the behavioural symptoms associated with Alzheimer's disease. That was Dr. Emer Maxweeney, Medical Director of Recognition Health, a London-based cognitive health provider specialising in Alzheimer's. Although the manufacturers of the drug released top-line results in a news release earlier this year, many doctors held back from celebrating until full results were released at the Clinical Trials and Alzheimer's Disease Conference. The full results show that the drug slow the decline in memory and mental agility by 27% in patients with mild Alzheimer's. It's not a cure, but even slowing the progression of Alzheimer's disease would be a game changer. Speaking with Sky News, Cyan Gregory, Research Information Manager at the Alzheimer's Society, explains how this could benefit patients. And essentially it's been able to slow down the uh, progression of symptoms and we think that that will give people uh, longer with more quality of life and give people longer with their families. For those living with Alzheimer's disease, this drug has been tested in people in the early stages. So that is the group of people that we think it will benefit the most. And we think in 2025, it could benefit at least 106,000 people in the UK if it is approved. As impressive as these results are, questions are being raised about the drug's safety. One in eight patients given the drug suffered brain swelling and some patients had bleeding in the brain. However, it's also important to note that deaths were no higher in those receiving treatment than those given a dummy drug. There are side effects that have been acknowledged in terms of the lacanumab trial Um, but it's important to remember that clinical trials are monitoring safety information very closely and safety is of paramount importance in clinical trials and the data that's been collected on safety will be going to those regulatory bodies and they will be scrutinizing the data to see if the drug is effective and also to see if the drug is safe and they'll make a decision and essentially no drug will be approved if it's not safe and it's not effective. So in terms of next steps, the drug needs to be approved before it's available for use. This is still an experimental medicine. It's not available anywhere else. So we are waiting on uh, the decisions by regulatory bodies on whether the drug will be approved for use or not. Uh, In terms of Europe, those decisions uh, we're expecting in 2024 as the submission of the data won't be until uh, March 2023. As the old saying goes, you are what you eat. Now a new investigation by Good Morning Britain and the University of Portsmouth shows that saying is more true than ever. We've heard about microplastics in the sea and in the air, but now it's in our food. Veku Zero is a pollution expert at the University of Portsmouth who led this research. So microplastics are any plastic that's smaller than five millimetres in size. They could be getting into the vegetables through the soil or uh, into our meat through grazing. 
They can be getting onto our food from the plastic packaging that they're wrapped in. Uh, air has lots of microplastics in, as you know, and it could be falling on top of the food. And finally, it could be from the cooking utensils. In the investigation, they put a classic roast to the test to assess levels of microplastic. They whipped up two dinners. One was made with plastic-wrapped ingredients and another made with mostly packaged-free products. In the plastic-wrapped roast, we found almost 230,000 microplastics on one single plate. If you ate a similar dinner every night for a year, that would be the equivalent of eating two carrier bags worth. They found almost seven times more microplastics in the wrapped roast compared to the non-wrapped roast. So what is this doing to our health? Professor Sajid Sebastian is a consultant gastroenterologist at Hull University and joined GMB to talk through the results. According to him, the key is to understand what those plastics are doing inside our bodies. Does it go to any organs? For example, does it cross the barrier between the blood and the brain, um, what if it is lodged in, let us say, in the intestine, which is my area of interest, is it going to stimulate some uh, problems or inflammation uh, which may lead on to disease down the line? These are critical questions which we need to answer. Whilst the Food Standards Agency claims that it's unlikely that the pressure of small particles could cause harm, that doesn't tell the whole story. Uh, I think it is quite right for Food uh, Standards Agency to be reassuring based on the current evidence, which we should say it's based on animal data rather than studies in human beings. But I don't think it is right to be complacent, primarily because we don't, we haven't yet done the studies. And also, just think about it in this way, that it's really not easy to justify something uh, like a plastic which stays in the environment for well over 500 years or so to be used for 20-minute packaging. So to be concerned right now, probably not. But do we need to be investigating this further before giving complete reassurance? I would say yes. Microplastics might seem unavoidable, but research like this is surely giving us all some food for thought. Still to come on the Sunday 7, life on Mars and a Hawaiian coral reef gets an insurance policy. Hawaii's threatened coral reefs just got their first insurance policy against coastal storms. Non-profit organization, the Nature Conservancy, brought it on behalf of the U.S. state, giving its reefs up to $2 million of protection until the end of December 2023. If it works, the first ever U.S. coral insurance contract will become a model for defending reefs around the country and across the world. The policy will provide funding to repair coral reefs immediately after any storm with wind speeds that reach at least 50 knots. This is Michaela Ann from the Nature Conservancy. With climate change and increasing intensity of storms in Hawaii and you know we've seen more tropical storms and hurricanes that hopefully this is a way we can um, help to respond to damage from tropical storms and hurricanes. The Nature Conservancy developed the world's first insurance policy for hurricanes specifically after Hurricane Delta struck Mexico in 2019. Because the money will become available when a storm of a certain strength hits, the Conservancy won't have to prove damages, allowing for quick action. The coral you know, gets damaged and is rolling around in the ocean and it, it only has a certain type survival time, so we have to respond immediately. That response involves surveying the damages, removing debris and retrieving corals that can be reattached. If the water is too dangerous for divers to fasten the fragments, they'll have to store them in a nursery until it's safe to do so, which would add costs. The amount of money paid out would depend on damages, but the maximum payout is $2 million. Coral reefs 
provide protection against flooding on our coastline. We protect our infrastructure like roads and buildings. So just the basis of us living here and being able to live in Hawaii, um, I feel like it's very important to protect this ecosystem. On the 18th of February 2021, in the midst of COVID restrictions and lockdowns, the NASA Perseverance rover touched down on Mars. It's been exploring the surface of Mars for the past year, beaming back some of the most extraordinary photographs from the red planet. But as it's been exploring the rocky surface, the rover has also been collecting a wealth of data and samples which are already changing how scientists understand the geology of Mars. The Natural History Museum has been working with NASA on the Perseverance rover and their research is providing exciting clues about potential life on the red planet. Caroline Smith is Head of Earth Sciences Collections at the Natural History Museum and joins CNN to discuss the new discovery. So what we found with um, data that's come back from the rover and has been studied over the last few months is that we see igneous rocks. So these are rocks that have been formed through volcanic processes which have also been affected by the action of liquid water. And that's really, really interesting and exciting because liquid water is one of the key ingredients you need for life to start. So if you've got the chances of life ever being on Mars, you'd need to have somewhere that had liquid water for at least a period of time. And we've got good evidence for that. But it's not just water. We're seeing, using instruments like uh, Sherlock, which is an instrument that I'm involved with, also the presence of organic molecules. And organic molecules are molecules, chemical molecules made of the elements uh, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, sometimes with some sulfur, sometimes Mm -hmm. with some phosphorus and maybe some added other things. And those are really, really important because you need organic molecules for life to start. And the other thing that's really interesting about organic molecules is they can actually be fossil evidence, sort of fossil chemical evidence of potential past life. But that doesn't mean that there was definitely life on Mars. The organic molecules we found so far, we cannot conclusively say or even guess that those are evidence of past life. To be able to do those types of experiments, we'd need to do really detailed experiments on labs um, in labs on Earth, which we hope to do in the 2030s, when we hope that these samples will be returned from Mars. But more evidence coming from Perseverance, we've seen some really interesting scientific results. Very, very tantalising. Celtic on the Sunday 7 near-death experiences and monkeypox gets a new name. Right after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to The Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso. Or maybe try our UK edition. It's all in the usual places. The World Health Organization has announced that it's phasing out the name monkeypox for the disease. The move comes after years of complaints that it has racial connotations and plays into stigmatising language. The virus is now called Mpox. Both the names are being used simultaneously for a year until Mpox is fully integrated. The UK was the first country to detect the international outbreak of monkeypox and with swift vaccination and behaviour change, cases in the West have declined significantly since the summer. So, in a medical context, what does the name change mean? Epidemiologist Dr. Jay Varma joined CBS News Mornings to explain. For the, for the average you know, physician, this doesn't really change anything at all, right? Um, I think what we all know in public health, and you know, we've certainly seen during COVID, is that you know, medical names and medical issues are also part of a larger social and political dialogue, right? Mm. And we know that for, for a very long time, uh, people with black skin have been you know, called names associated with monkeys. So it makes sense from a sort of social perspective. Scientific Typically, it also makes sense. It's actually not a disease that's associated with monkeys. It just happens to be the first time it was ever detected was in, a, in monkeys. Um, so for scientific reasons, it's a, it doesn't really make much of a difference as well to, uh, to change the name. It, it's, it's perfectly accurate to change the name. So, I mean, I do think that one can expect that within scientific circles, a lot of people will continue to use both names. But when it comes to the way people like myself and, and others who are communicating publicly, over time, the name will change. And this has, you know, happened before. Uh, we no longer call, uh, you know, a disease called rubella. We no longer call it German measles. Mm. Uh, we no longer refer to the 1917, 1918 flu as the Spanish flu. So changing names so that they're not stigmatizing is actually something that is very common. This is not a new uh, phenomenon, what WHO has chosen to do. A long time ago, I was in a coma with a brain injury as a result of a particularly flamboyant crash involving a certain jet-powered dragster. Back in 2006, presenter Richard Hammond sustained brain injuries in a high-speed car accident while filming for Top Gear. Speaking in a TikTok video, the former show host spoke about being seconds from death after doctors had said he wouldn't make it before miraculously surviving the ordeal. He reveals how his wife saved his life by screaming in his ear when he was in a coma. And she was told, it's not looking good, we think we're going to lose him. And she said, is there anything I can do? And they said, well, no, not really. And she said, can I shout at him? And they said, yeah, whatever. And she asked, no, I mean, really, really shout at him. And she did. And apparently she roared and screamed and swore at me, don't you dare die. And that's when I turned back from this tree in my dream 
And that's when I woke. So what was happening to Richard Hammond? Dr. Sam Parnia is Associate Professor of Critical Care Medicine and Director of Critical Care and Resuscitation Research at NYU School of Medicine. He explained to Radio Times it's likely Richard was experiencing a kind of dream state. People who go through death and come back to life have recalled universal and consistent features, even though they don't know each other at all. And this is cross-cultures, cross-so-called religious beliefs and non-religious beliefs and so on and so forth. It seems to be a universal human experience. Remarkably, we find that when people go through there, they have these lucid experiences of death that are not consistent with hallucinations. They are not consistent with illusions. They are not delusional. These are real experiences that are occurring. So what do experts conclude from this? Is there more to life and death than science can explain? You see, the problem here is that we have very fixed societal views about what life and death is. And why? Because for thousands of years, what used to happen was when the heart stopped, people would be permanently dead. There was nothing you could do. There was a, You could draw a clear line between when they were alive and they were dead, because the moment the heart stopped, they were lifeless, motionless, the brain would stop working, they would stop breathing, and they would be dead, and they'd be permanently dead. The reality is that science now has gone well into death and into the post-mortem period. And what we've understood that actually is that you can be dead, and I'm I'm not playing with words, I don't mean close to death, I mean really dead and beyond dead, in the post-mortem period, and still be brought back to life again. Because the cells in your body do not die the same time that you die. They go into sort of a hibernation state for hours of time. And that during that period, you can be brought back to life, which is why the experiences that people have are truly reflecting the experience of death, not just near death. So what is going on with human consciousness? Going back thousands of years to Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and Democritus and all these other great philosophers and Avicenna and great thinkers, people have tried to understand what is it that makes us who we are? How do our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our, our, our self come to be? And essentially, there have been two very broad categories of belief system. And these are beliefs. Some people have always believed that, well, somehow, magically, the body, the brain will generate your thinking, your thoughts, your consciousness. Others have proposed that that may not, be, may not address the problem because actually... We can now study the brain in great detail. We know how every cell works. We know how the cells connect together. We know how millions and billions of cells connect together. Yet, we cannot find any evidence for how those cells can generate your thoughts. We cannot find how cells can start thinking and feeling. And one alternative is that maybe consciousness, the things that makes us who we are, is a separate, undiscovered scientific entity that interacts with the brain in the same way that you need a radio or a TV to decode electromagnetic waves and turn them into sound and picture. But they're not produced by the TV or the radio. And it might be your consciousness is a separate, undiscovered entity that is remarkable and can do all these remarkable things. And that might be a better explanation. Visitors at the Natural History Museum will soon be able to walk in the shadow of the most complete, gigantic dinosaur ever discovered. It was truly enormous. This is an animal that weighed about 60 tons, about four times bigger than our beloved Dickon. 
And this would have been a really impressive creature to see striding across the Pasconian landscape 101 million years ago. That was the voice of Professor Paul Barrett from the Natural History Museum. Weighing in a 57 tonnes Patagot Titan mare would have shaken the ground as it wandered across Argentine terrain. It's a gigantic herbivore, so it would have been roaming around, munching on conifers and on cycads and ferns as it moved around the landscape. And it would have been preyed on by very little when it was a, when it was an adult. These animals were probably impervious to predators at full adult size. But there are also some really large T-Rex-sized carnivores lurking around as well, which would have been able to take the younger ones and occasionally take on an adult protagonist in itself. So it lived in quite a dangerous time, but these animals were, because of their size, were fairly invulnerable to attack. Its 37-metre skeleton will be housed in the museum's enormous Waterhouse Gallery, which has a 9-metre-high ceiling. People will get a real feel of the size of the animal by standing next to a titanosaur femur bone, as well as a look into the eyes of the sauropod skull. Titanosaur life as the biggest dinosaur will open in the South Kensington Museum on the 31st of March, 2023. This has been the Sunday 7. However you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7 Ireland edition. Have a great rest of the weekend. Written, produced and published by Dan Doris. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2 and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Hi, this is Kira from the Smart 7 Ireland edition. Just to let you know, we're pausing this podcast from Friday the 25th of August, but you can still get up to speed in just seven minutes if you search the Smart 7 and catch up with our UK edition. Thanks for listening.